Revelation to Romans chapter 5, and also in the Old Testament to Isaiah 63, 19, and 64, 1. Translators seem to have a little problem with that. Some of it make it one verse, some make it two. Don't be confused. Isaiah 63, 19 through 64, 1. Romans chapter 5. We also have at the center of my heart now to pray for a Christian rapper named Mars. I don't know if you've seen his rap on the apocatastasis. Quite brilliant. He captured just about everything in a six or seven minute rap. I guess I could play that and just sit down to... Uh, something Jim would like. He's always bringing me tapes, and he said, this guy or this woman said in five minutes what you've been trying to say for 35 years. And he pretty much got just about everything in that rap. You might want to look it up online. He's M-A-R-Z. He and his wife, Mirella, M-I-R-E-L-A, and his sons, Caleb and Isaiah. And Phil's been in touch with Mars, he's used to do a lot of concerts. Then he discovered the universal mercy, the saving mercy of God. And that kind of expelled him, ostracized him, as so many are experiencing today as they sadly receive an insight from God that makes them be expelled from people who call themselves God's people. But that's only because that insight needs to be more and more infectious, I suppose. But Please keep Mars and his wife, Mirella, and their children in prayer. They're on an island, as he put it, and we want them to be surrounded not only by God's elevating grace, but by like-minded saints. That's what we're doing right now. We're surrounding them with our love and prayer and grace and kindness. So the networking continues, and God begins to gather more and more people to whom he is gifted with this insight, and I'm very grateful for it. So, and again, I do recommend, I never thought I'd recommend a rap song, but I'm I'm from the rock and roll era. I'm, I'm a hard rocker, I guess you'd call it, but that was one rap that I could listen to over and over again. And if you notice, he has a T-shirt that has adversity on top, but it has apocatastasis on the bottom, if you're really keen. So, thank you for choosing today the one needful thing, as Jesus called it, the one needful thing. In 1899, a Polish Englishman named Joseph Conrad wrote a book called Heart of Darkness. It's a little novella, a small novel, about a trek into the deep of the Congo, and it is... A man named Christopher Marlowe is narrating what he calls a trip that got him deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness, which is a kind of a revelation of the heart of man's sinfulness. And that was adapted in a movie in 1979. I think it was quite superbly directed and acted in 1979 called Apocalypse Now. And that also had to do with the trek 
in the era of Vietnam. It was set in Vietnam, and of course, Colonel Kurtz plays a sort of renegade officer who becomes a kind of an idol god in the midst of the jungle, and that kind of story was adapted. Apocalypse Now was the name of the movie, and there's a key scene in the movie where you see a sign says Apocalypse Now. And that's under the understanding that people have, of course, that apocalypse means disaster, that apocalypse means catastrophe, that perhaps it means a worldwide catastrophe. But I'm going to speak today on an apocalypse that is also now, but it's the apocalypse of love. The apocalypse of love. Romans 117, the scripture says the righteousness of God, which we have demonstrated in the scriptures to mean his act, the act of God. Righteousness, more than an attribute of God, is the act of God, the movement of God, which in which he acts savingly toward all of humankind and all of creation. That righteousness is presently being apocalypsed. In fact, the word, as we know, is apocalypto, A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-T-O in the Greek, apocalypto, and that word is something I want to give definition to. The present tense is being used here. The righteousness of God is being apocalypsed. What does it mean? It's being apocalypsed. By means of the gospel, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, the immediacy of Christ and him crucified is revealed again. His immediacy, the immediacy of Christ and him crucified is revealed through the gospel and brings salvation. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, a verse that keeps on requiring my attentiveness it says, but now, and the word is nuni. Some of you can relate to that. You've had surgery recently where you got a new knee. New knee. And that means now. It speaks of an immediacy. Now. And that means as opposed to the long history of Israel in which lambs and rams Bulls, heifers were offered as symbolic sacrifices, but now, once and for all, hapax is the Greek word, once and for all, at the end of the ages should be in the combination of the ages, at the juncture of two ages, the outgoing, old, archaic, obsolete, even evil age, the incoming messianic age of grace and God's love and benevolence. At the juncture of those ages, Christ appeared. The word apocalypto isn't used, but a twin to that word is used, and it's phanerao. Phanerao, which usually means to be manifested in a dramatic way, so it's sort of like apocalypto. It's used sometimes instead of apocalypto, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O, Omicron O, Omega O, Thanarao. Once and for all, at the juncture of the ages, Christ has appeared. The perfect tense 
of Phanerao means that he has appeared with the result that his appearance is still starkly manifest through the preaching or the kerygma, the proclamation of the word of God. So now once and for all, at the juncture of the ages, Christ has appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself, not the offering of lambs, bullocks, bulls, heifers, doves, but the offering of himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now you put those two verses together, you have a now apocalypse at the end of the ages, and that apocalypse is one of love. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son. In fact, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. The accent falls on God because everybody's wondering what is love. The accent doesn't fall on love there, it falls on God. God is love. And he demonstrated this love by sending his son into the world that we might live through him, participate in his livingness, as we mentioned last week. And he did so by his son becoming an expiation for our sins, the putting away of sins, 1 John 4, 9. So we love because God loved us first. That love in the apocalypse of love is poured out into our hearts. So we have from Romans 1, 17, apocalypse. From Hebrews 9, 26, we have now. On top of this, we have 2 Corinthians 5.19, which I regard as central to the New Testament. God was in Christ, reconciling. What a word needs to be heard today, reconciling. God was in Christ, reconciling. The word here is katalasso. I just want to give you some Greek words because there's some phenomenal Agreement among them. Katalasso means to reconcile, but there's a word that's used. It's an intensified word in Colossians 1.20. It's apo, katalasso. The word apo intensifies it, and he talks about the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth through the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross, God reconciles all things, apokatalasso. That becomes one of many A words that are very interesting. For example, apokatastasis, which speaks of a restoration, which is universal in Acts 3.21. All the prophets talk about it. I don't know why no preachers do today. My question is, why don't preachers today Talk about what prophets have talked about from time immemorial. Apocatastasis panton, universal restoration. A universal restoration called apocatastasis, which relates to apocatalasso, which is the reconciliation, tapanta of all things, a universal reconciliation, which Paul puts central in his messages. And then there's my favorite verse of all time, which at least lately is Ephesians 1.10, God's, the mystery of God's intention 
is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. That means salvifically sum up all things, tapanta, all creation in all of its times in Christ. That word's another A word, anakephalaiao. I'll write them all down maybe in a print sometime. But So we have A words like apokatalaso. We have apokatastasis. We have anakephalaiao. And we have another word, apolutrosis, which means redemption. But lutrosis, lutrosis means redemption, but apo again strengthens it. The A word, apolutrosis. God has made him, Jesus Christ, to be wisdom for us. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All sinned and come short of the glory of God, being redeemed or justified by the redemption. Apolutrosis, another A word. Apolutrosis, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus that redeems and justifies all who sinned and who sin in Adam. So we have A words, apokatalasso, apokatastasis, apolutrosis. Anakephalaiao. All of these words indicate something that's universal in its scope or horizon. And we add to that, of course, one more A word agape. God's love. God is love. What is love? God is love. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation. That's ton logon tes katalages, the message of reconciliation to us, Paul said. Speaking of himself and his associates, his apostolic associates, but also speaking of all the church, all believers who are part of the apostolate or the missionary apostolate. He's committed this to us. This word of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins to them, has been charged to all believers. Why aren't all believers telling people that message? Why do churches ostracize a man and his family for giving forth the message that God committed us to preach. Why? You have to ask yourself this question. I ask myself this question. We have to ask ourselves this question because this revelation has not come to America yet. It's been other places in the world. It hasn't come to America yet, and when it has, it's being resisted by the American church because the American church is so proud of what it thinks it is. It has a wrong idea of its well-being. It has the wrong idea of God being pleased with it because of its performance or because of something that it's done or is doing or is worshiping God or God is so pleased with its worship because it's heartfelt and emotional and all the rest of it. When they've rejected the message... God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them is what I call the apocalypse of love. There is an apocalypse. It is now. 
It's the apocalypse of unrestricted, passionate, divine, Trinitarian philanthropy for all of humankind in all of its times from a God who refuses to lose anything. Pick up the crumbs after you feed those thousands of people, Jesus said. Now go and pick up the crumbs lest we lose anything. Everything Jesus did had symbolism toward the saving of all things, including, as my sister showed me yesterday, the little excerpt of why he folded the napkin in his tomb, the napkin that covered his face, because that was symbolic of a king who's been waited on If he just leaves the napkin on the table, he says, I'm done with my meal. If he folds it, he's saying, I'll be back. So Jesus folds the napkin because he's coming back. He's coming back in the same revelation of stunning love for all humankind. Everything he did. Pick up the crumbs. That's what I think was the command that was obeyed by the Holy Spirit. Pick up the crumbs. And he went and picked me up. So that we don't lose anything. So that nothing perishes. Do you really think you know God? Do you really think, do you tell people that you know and love God? And I'm not really speaking so much to this audience who have adopted and received this reconciliation in Romans 5.11. But if this message ever were to go outside of these walls, I would say, do you really think that you know God. Then you ask yourself if you know him as being in Christ and reconciling the world to himself. What manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? That we should be called the sons of God, the eschatological Israel of God. And such we are. John said. The only thing we can't imagine is what we shall be when it's all finished, when we're consummated in resurrection. But we do know this when we see him. We'll be like him, or we will see him as he is. What kind of impact does that hope have on you and on me? A purifying impact. It purifies us from the toxicity of this present age from the ressentiment in irrational hatred and bitterness and from the tyranny and oppressiveness of oppressors and tyrants. From the surliness and dissatisfaction of a spoiled generation in the United States of America or two or three generations who do not know persecution, who do not know deprivation, who are unaware of true adversity, purified. Now, Romans 5.11, where we're going to go today, Paul says, U monon de ala kai kau komenoi. Here's where we boast, he says. We boast. 
Remember the question was asked by the opposing teacher in Romans 3.27. Where is boasting then? Paul says here's where it is. Not only that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, noon here, noon, N-U-N, through whom we have now received the katalagain, the reconciliation. We've been reconciled to the reconciliation. If God was in Christ already reconciling the world, why does Paul say, I urge you, be reconciled to God? Because he wants the church to be reconciled to the reconciliation that God has already made. You know one reason. Here's one way you can tell you've been reconciled to the reconciliation. Your whole mind isn't directed toward critique of other people. A critical analysis of everyone's behavior. Which only proves that symbolically you have been eating, if not I said this week, gorging on the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than eating from the tree of life and sharing and participating in the livingness of the living, loving God. Now then, second phase, apocalypse, has to do with a veil. People have said apocalypto because it has to do with a veil that apocalypto must mean primarily to unveil or to apple remove kalupto, the veil. In some regards, that's true. But there's a more important meaning to this. And so I ask the question, the veil, draw it back or tear it in two? What does apocalypse mean? Is it a drawing back of a veil to reveal a hidden person or thing? Or is it the tearing of a veil in which that person steps into our area of living and reveals himself? Well, let me consider a couple of things. One of the most important books I ever read, Theological Issues in the Letters of Paul, in an article called From Paul to Flannery O'Connor with the Power of Grace, Lewis Martin wrote this. And he is probably one of the pivotal theologians for the turn of eschatology toward apocalyptic eschatology or apocalyptic theology. Listen carefully to what he says. And I wouldn't quote theologians if I didn't think it was very meaningful to us. He said, when we speak of revelation, we think of the drawing back of a curtain resulting in the exposure of something previously hidden behind the curtain. There are elements of Paul's apocalyptic that can be related to that picture. He quotes 1 Corinthians or cites 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 as an example. On the whole, however, and this I love the punch in this thing. On the whole, however, the image of an uncovering or an unveiling is woefully inadequate as an attempt to interpret Paul's apocalyptic. Paul's view is focused instead on the image of a dynamic invasion. 
And then he says, the invasion inaugurates the movement on the apocalyptic landscape. Not an unveiling as much as it is an invasion. Martin goes on to help us understand this by using Jesus' parable of binding of the strong man. Jesus had been casting out demons, a weird place to cast them out, in church. In his first sermon in a synagogue, demons screamed out. I believe that if you went forth with this, if I preached this message in a lot of churches, you'd hear screams of irrational reaction, and they would be demonic screams. Demons have more of a hold in holy people churches than you could possibly imagine. So people wonder what he's doing. He's uh, the real exorcist here. He's driving out demons by the power of God. He said, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then maybe the kingdom of God is coming upon you. Well, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, he said. The Lord of the Flies. There's another novel for you. The reason he's called the, Satan's called the Lord of the Flies is because flies hover around a certain substance. Oh, like the false gospel that Paul called scubula. We won't go there. Not again. But he, he goes into this parable of the binding of the strong man in Mark 3.27. Of this, Martin says this. Here, Jesus interprets the powers of demon exorcism active in him. And he does so by drawing on the warlike imagery. I think you were quite sensitive today, Pastor Brown, in your prayer. Warlike imagery. Of apocalyptic. Jesus' strength to exercise demons from terrorized human beings is a sign of the powers of the new creation. And then he says, they are invading the house of the old age, binding the satanic strongman who is the major power of that age and freeing human beings from his grasp. I could if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Go into how preachers and people in the magisteriums of the authorities of large denominations terrorize people with a doctrine of hell. But I won't do that today. I'm in a better mood. I'm talking about the apocalypse of love. All you need is love. Ah, another passage. I, I can't believe sometimes I'm going, Lord, what will I preach on? And I look at a book and open the book and pop, this pops up. I couldn't believe I opened up Militant Grace to page 63. Because right there, the author quoted the passage I just quoted. And then he went on to say, a passage such as Romans 8 is bold to characterize this movement or this apocalyptic movement as a movement of Love. And I said to myself, Romans 8, yeah, but also Romans 5, where we'll close today, Romans 5. 
A passage such as I would say Romans 5 through 8 is bold to characterize this movement, this apocalyptic movement, as a movement of love. In the free and sovereign coming of the Son, Ziegler goes on to say, in his self-giving unto death, and in his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, God's love has invaded and traversed the landscape of the fallen world concretely and with momentous effect. Christians can be assured that nothing can separate them from God because the power of God that appeared in his Son is the power of love by which God has chosen and gathered his people to himself and holds on to them forever. Christ's kingship is not an austere and distant sovereignty demanding our obedience alone. It is rather an eschatological gift of love. Let me say that again. Let me summarize summarize this. Christ's kingship is an eschatological gift of love, an end-time gift of love that redeems women and men from the world of unlove. What a better way to describe what Paul calls an evil age than a world of unlove. By an irresistible divine self-giving, thereby conscripting them into his service as creaturely agents of his love and purpose. What are we? Creaturely agents that have been conscripted by God, that's a military term, as agents of his love and purpose. Or maybe we could say with Paul, we have been entrusted with the word of reconciliation. The word, the logos of reconciliation is the same thing as what Paul called the word of his cross, which is foolish to those who are perishing. Let me say it this way. Foolishness to Christians who are perishing, right in the midst of their Christian profession, they are perishing because they are under the control of the very sin that they preach against, a sin controlled experience in which it's demonstrated by their judgmentalism, their criticism, their rejection, their evil heart of unbelief against this message, their resistance of the grace of God, and even their resistance of the Holy Spirit, which Stephen said to his own people, you're just like your forefathers. You resist the Holy Spirit just like they did, and you're still doing the same thing. This was done even in love, though. There's a reason why he's called the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. And there's a reason why God's people, so-called, are challenged with outraging him. Stop outraging the spirit of grace. As if the saving work of God is not for all. So, I ask myself another question. Is the tearing of the curtain more fitting 
than the pulling away of the curtain to describe apocalypse? That's a fair question. I don't just read these guys and say, oh, that must be right because they wrote it. He's at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's got to be right and let me play a bagpipe and say he's got to be. No, I I say, wait a minute, is that right? Onset? Thomas Aquinas even taught me how to say that. Is that so? Or Lonergan. Look at Isaiah chapter 63, verse 19. This is Trito Isaiah. There's Proto-Isaiah, Isaiah 1 through chapters 1 through 39. There's Deutero-Isaiah, 40 through 55. There's Trito-Isaiah, the third Isaiah, 56 to 66. And in 63:19, this is what Israel says. We have become like those you never ruled over. How oh, could we do 10 sermons on that today for the Christian church? We have become like those you never ruled over. Like those not called by your name. Look at this. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. So that mountains would quake at your presence. Guess what happened at the cross? Guess what happened at Christ's baptism? The heavens were torn from top to bottom and a voice from God was heard. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am pleased. And again, that voice came tearing across the mountains on the Mount of Transfiguration. To rebuke Peter, who thought it would be so unseemly for him to go to the cross and be crucified. God said, this is my son, in whom I am very pleased. Listen to him. That is, when he says, I must go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Oh, if you would only tear the heavens open and come down. Jesus said it in John 151. From now on, you will see the son of man. Angels ascending and descending on him. That means now, now you'll see this. To see Jesus, even in the days of his flesh, culminating with the cross, is to see the way angels traffic between heaven and earth through the cross of Jesus Christ. What happened on the cross? He who broke through the veil and stepped into the evil age and was crucified on a cross, at which time, what happened? An earthquake. Mountains quaked at his presence. Mountains quaked in his resurrection from the dead. And so, a tearing of the curtain is indeed more fitting image for apocalypse or apocalyptic. And this passage is in the same district of Scripture where Isaiah is very bold to speak for Yahweh and to say in Isaiah 65, 1 to 2, right in the same area, same treat as Isaiah, I was found by those who were not 
seeking me. Not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking. But to Israel, he says, this is Yahweh speaking through Trito Isaiah, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. God keeps being found by people not seeking him, and those who say they seek him are defiant to the very message that he's bringing to his church and to the world. Verses come to mind like tax collectors and whores are going into the kingdom of God before you guys do to religious magisterium, Pharisees, scribes. So, but this is an apocalypse of love, so I won't do that. On top of that, this passage is in the same what I call scriptural district or neighborhood as the promise of God's creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17. Isaiah 66, 22. But topping even that is the striking and dramatic tearing of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. At the sound of the cry of Jesus from the cross, the priests that were in the temple at that time saw the curtain separating the holy place from the holiest place of all, torn from top to bottom. This veil or curtain that was torn to grant access to everyone, to the Holy of Holies. When God tore the curtain, he, didn't, he said, this isn't just for you priests now, it's for everybody. I just made the way to the holiest place. Access to me, the Father, available to everybody. Come right in. That's the message brought to us in Hebrews that people have resisted and are resisting today. And I'm not saying that unto condemnation. I am here because God gave me a change of mind about this whole thing. From a resistor of the message of grace to one totally committed to it and totally convinced by it. God granted that repentance to me. I can't say that. I'm here and you should be where I am. I'm not saying that. I can say, here's the message. Be reconciled to God through it. This veil or curtain that was torn to grant access to all, to the Holy of Holies, was interpreted correctly by the writer to the Hebrews as the flesh of Messiah Christ himself. The veil, he said, that was torn, that is to say, his flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of Jesus. Because in 1019 of Hebrews, he says, we have boldness for access into the holiest place of all by the blood of Jesus. And then he talks about, in the next verse, after 1019, the blood of Jesus, he talks about, the veil that was torn, that is to say, his flesh. Apocalypse means God 
tore a veil separating himself from us and then stepped through the torn veil to be with us. And the very fact that God became incarnate in Jesus Christ shows that he was not content to exist in and for himself, but only content to exist for and in human beings, men and women and children, all humanity. The veil or the curtain was torn to grant access to the Holy of Holies is the flesh of Messiah, who is the word made flesh. The word became flesh and the flesh was torn in the apocalypse of love. Why do Christians resist this? Because they're right to assume that this will destroy your whole world. You lose, you suffer the loss of your whole cosmos, your whole world, and then you get it back again, put all together. I taught many years ago, Humpty Dumpty fell off a wall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But the Lord can, the king can. All the king's men can't, but the king can. And so I identify with most nursery rhymes. Of all the nursery rhymes, I identify with a character called Humpty Dumpty. Because I fell off a wall and was shattered and nobody could put me together again. I mean, so shattered back in 1972, nobody could put me back together again. Not Christians from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Not Christians from Campus Crusade. Not people majoring in psychology and psychiatry. Not counselors or deans or professors or friends or priests or counselors. All the king's men couldn't put old Humpty together again. But the king did. The king himself did. So your world gets shattered and then put together. Blessed are you when you lose your life to find it rather than keep it to lose it. People are keeping their lives in their own little sacred corners and sacrificing access to the holiest place of all. The most wonderful message of all of God's great infinite love and universal mercy. They are sacrificing that to keep their lives. And they'd be right to fear the end of the life they're holding on to, which would lead to that much greater livingness in Christ. So in closing, the word made flesh is the curtain that was torn, granted us access into his grace, wherein we now stand permanently. The curtain or the veil that was torn, was torn from the divine side. So it's not a thing of, oh, let me tear, oh, there's Jesus behind the curtain that I pulled away. No, God says, you asked for it, I'm tearing the veil of the heavens from my side, and I'm going to step into where you are to reveal an apocalypse of love. You can't get around it. You can't get through it. You can't get over it. You can't get under it. It's the love of God. 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not things up there, not things down there, not things over there or things in the future or things in the past that sneak up on you and wake you up in the middle of the night and give you anxiety attacks. Can't separate you from the love of God. I'm going to skip a section right now and go right to Romans 5. Let's see if we read these couple of paragraphs, Romans 5 through 11. I'm just going to read them. We're almost done with Romans, incidentally. I have a translation of Romans almost finished. So just when you think, oh, he's going to go over that again, I might say, we're done. Romans 5.1. Let's just see if we can pick up some of these themes that we've been looking at already about an apocalypse of Love in Romans 5, 1 through 11. I've translated this already. It says, therefore, being justified on account of the faithfulness, it says. The aforementioned faithfulness means not your faith, but that of Messiah Jesus. The faithfulness in which he was handed over for our sins, Romans 4, 25, just backed up a little bit and raised up for our justification. The faithfulness by which we're justified is the faithfulness of Christ in resurrection. He was raised for our justification. Let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace there is unity with other believers, harmony among each other, where once there were separation because of the pride of bias and the resentment of prejudice and the bitterness of hatred. And envy, jealousy, all that stuff. We have peace. Let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have what? Access. There it is. Through whom we have access. Why? Because the veil that was torn is the flesh of Jesus, through whom we have access into this grace in which we stand. And let us boastfully exult, celebrate, triumphantly is what it means, in the hope of the glory of God. That's the confident, in fact, unqualified expectation of God's glory filling the whole earth, as Isaiah 6.3 says and Habakkuk 2.14 says. The angels know more than we do, and they say the whole earth is filled with his glory. So we rejoice, celebrate. Where's boasting? Right here. Boasting, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Beyond that, verse 3, let us also exalt, celebrate in our troubles. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Listen to how I translate this because this captures the sense from three to four. It's a difficult passage unless you see the Greek text. It says, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, in verse four, the proven character, which in turn incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy. In other words, the troubles you go through and that God delivers you from gives you more confidence that the next troubles you go through, which are probably going to be worse, 
God is going to deliver you with an even more unusual grace. And you begin to live decade after decade in seeing that you go into trouble and God delivers you. And all that does is intensify and incentivize your expectation of glory because he keeps on just being faithful. He just keeps on doing it. And if he's not faithful right now, at least to your eyes, in delivering you from a long, protracted, and delayed tribulation, then you better rejoice that the perseverance you're getting out of this one will make you a soldier in the army of Christ like never before. One of the biggest troubles we go through is delay. And this hope is not a shame. You know what that means? It means this hope isn't just a deferred consolation, meaning There it is out there. Someday you're going to live with God. It's going to be wonderful, but for now, tough. It's not a deferred consolation, meaning you shouldn't be embarrassed for having this hope. Because presently, what's happening right now in the present is the love of God is already being poured out in our hearts. What I'm talking to you about is the apocalypse of love is now, not only then. It's even now. And so your hope is incentivized because you already have an initial experience. You say, Where, when did I have that initial? Do you believe what I told you today about the love of God being apocalypsed? Then you already have the love of God being poured out in your heart. And that is why your hope doesn't need to be an embarrassing item in your life because love shows that the hope is sure to be utterly fulfilled because it already is beginning to be fulfilled by God's Holy Spirit's presence in you, pouring out the love of God. So, what kind of love is it, he asks. or I ask this, well, what kind of love is it? The love of God has already been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What kind of love is the next question? Look at verse 6. While we were still desperately sick, asthenes, that means totally, radically incapacitated to do anything to extract ourselves from a desperate condition. Totally, radically incapacitated. Call it total depravity if you're Calvinist, if you want. That's a pretty good word. It doesn't mean that we're as evil as we can be. It just means that we're so radically incapacitated, we can't do anything that would gain God's approval or pleasure. It all had to be Christ. While we were still desperately sick or terminally ill is the image, Christ died just in time. When? In the crisis of the ages. In the juncture of the ages. I said it at the beginning in Hebrews 9.26. On behalf of who? The ungodly. What? He died on behalf of the ungodly. Look at those ungodly people. What do you think of them? I think Christ died for them. And I think God gets a really big kick out of justifying the ungodly. Don't you? Well, of course I don't. Well, come on over here. We'll have an exorcism. Get that demon out of you that hates grace so much, okay? Let's get that demon out of you. Come out! 
He went over the edge now. He's gone. He's finished. They got him now. Well, now, with difficulty, you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person. Remember the Hall of Valor at Soldiers and Sailors? We couldn't meet at the Gettysburg Room, so we go to the Hall of Valor. And if I was early, I'd look up at there and see all these little vignettes of intrepidity of people who laid their lives down for their fellow troops or their fellow soldiers or sailors and fell on a grenade or stepped in front of machine gun fire. They laid their lives down. They, well, with difficulty, you can find examples of someone dying for an innocent person. The Hall of Valor. I don't know if they still have it. It's worth visiting just to read some of those things. And for a benevolent person, that is someone who's known to be a good guy or a good woman, someone may also be brave enough to die. There's, there you go, the best of human examples of bravery and courage. No greater love does any man have than he lays down his life for his friends. But that's a man. God's love is different. Or let's just say God's love includes that. Because God became a man. But look what it says. God showcased his love for us, exhibited his love, demonstrated his love, brought his love into exhibition, dramatic exhibition, whatever you want to say. That verb is powerful. God showcased his love for us in that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin, Christ died for us on behalf of us. You say, well, I, I, I don't get that. I wasn't sinning when Christ died. I said that one time when I read this verse. What do you mean? While I was still sinning. I wasn't sinning when Christ died. But that's when I began to understand that he's talking about God seeing all of humankind in all of its times, all of whom have complicity with sin. So God saw all of humanity in all of its times in enslaved to sin and complicit or colluding with it and doing sin. And while he saw, as he made an assessment of the whole human race, the heart of darkness, the heart of man, that's when Christ died on behalf of us. That's the kind of love we're talking about. On behalf of us, in our place. Not in our place as one punished for us, but in our place enduring with God the ultimate harvest of sin. Where sin would have, been brought, have brought us finally and everlastingly to an indescribable death and an endless death. It's a kind of death that would have been endured if we ate from the tree of the knowledge ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then ate from the tree of life and extended our death indefinitely. That's what Jesus endured for us. Much more than, verse 9, since we have been justified now, it actually says, since we have now been justified by what? His blood. Told you we'd pick up some themes 
we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath. He goes all the way back to Romans 1.18 where the teacher wants to make a big deal out of the apocalypse of God's wrath. The wrath of God is being presently apocalypsed. Yes, it is, against all sin, which was judged at the cross. God's wrath is apocalypsed or invades all that would destroy you. Sin, death, and the devil who had the power of sin and death. Christ partook of death to destroy the devil who had the power of death. He used the power of death to terrorize us. And keep us in fear all our lives. And his people called preachers and televangelists keep using that leverage of the devil called death to cause people to fear. You won't go to hell is the suggestion if you give and tithe to us. It's a seed. Plant the seed. And you'll receive favor from God. And you probably, you might not go to hell then. That kind of stuff. That's oversimplification, but it's not far off. Let's have an exorcism for all the ministries that exercise or size, not er size. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm just having fun. This is my inter- uh, besides watching the Yankees beat the Boston Red Sox, this is my only fun. So, verse Much more then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from the wrath that the teacher talks about in Romans 1.18 through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, reconciled to God while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death, then how much more having been reconciled? Will we be saved by his life? That means even now by sharing his livingness and participating in his eternal life, his livingness, we experience a salvation from the slavery to sin and even from complicity to sin because we're not under the law but under grace. Therefore, sin does not have dominion over us, Romans 6.14. Now, in closing, closing, closing then, not only that... I've taken the habit of doing this. Paul always does it. I do it too. Not only that, on top of that, beyond that, there's always a beyond that. Not only that, but we also rejoice triumphantly or boast. Where is boasting then? Right here. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received. Now, noon. It's almost noon. Noon. We have received reconciliation. We've received it. And I don't have to tell you that this blends with Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. While we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what I mean by by grace you're saved. By grace you are saved. What do you mean by grace you are saved? I mean, while we were dead in sin, God made us alive in the same livingness as the risen Christ. That's what I mean, Ephesians 2, 5, by grace 
you have been saved and are being saved and will be throughout eternity. And I will expand it by saying, by grace, you are saved through faithfulness. Not yours. Not yours. Not your faith. Faithfulness that isn't yours. For the righteousness of God is being apocalypse now through faithfulness. God's expressed in Christ's death. By grace you've been saved through faithfulness, not yours. The faithfulness of God expressed in Jesus Christ in his obedience to death by crucifixion followed by resurrection. Not of works, lest any person would boast. Where's boasting? Not in our works, not in our will. We're learning in the midweek services something very unusual. It is not of him that wills. Not of works, but it's got to be my will. No, it doesn't. Not of him that works, not of him that wills, not of him that runs, but of God who shows mercy. Romans nine sixteen. of God who shows mercy. Yeah, then he showed mercy to me, but who else is he going to show mercy to? Oh, Romans eleven thirty two. You forgot the peak of all of Romans. He shut up everybody in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. Is God just or unjust? To have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Is God unjust? Paul asks in 914. Is he unjust? Is there injustice in God? Because he says I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Is God unjust to have mercy on whoever he wants to? No. Then if God has mercy on all which he's going to. Are you going to call unjust God unjust for having mercy on all. I'm not going to call him unjust because I don't believe God is revealing his wrath. I believe God is revealing his righteousness and his righteousness is the apocalypse of love. Amen. See, some of you Wednesday, we're almost winding up Romans pretty quickly here. 